1: Well, uh, you can turn your Bibles, uh, to, to Judges chapter two. That's where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> well, actually we're going to be in first Samuel. Mostly we're going to just start in, in, uh, in Judges chapter two. We're going to, we're going to take a break, uh, from our study through second Corinthians. God's kind of put something on my heart to, to share. And it's, it's, uh, likely because it's, it's related to mother's day. It's a story of Hannah, uh, who is the mother of the prophet, uh, Samuel, but, uh, In case you didn't know already, today's Mother's Day. And fun fact... Everyone has a mom. I know, I know. That's why you come here to learn the hard things that no one else will tell you, right? So everyone has a mom. <clears throat> I, uh, unfortunately, I had a, a great mom. So the mom's watching. Thank you very much for being a great mom, and I'm blessed to be married to a great wife who is a great mom. And um, and this year we've got a, a couple moms celebrating Mother's Day as moms for the first time. So that's a pretty big deal. <laughs> We've, uh, we've got at least at least one mom who is with child. And I say at least one because maybe there's others who just don't know yet. Uh, depends how the weekend went. So <laughs> um, the, the thing about Mother's Day, though, uh, is it's like 80% great and we celebrate it. And then there's like 20% where it's like a claymore mine ready to explode with shrapnel going everywhere. Because the reality is uh, not everyone looks forward to this day. For, for, for some people, this is the worst day on the calendar. Because see, not everyone had a great mom growing up and, uh, and others have, have lost their mom. And so today is a day where they're reminded of that, that they don't have a mom anymore. And, and others, they, they, didn't, they didn't get a chance to know their mom. Maybe they were adopted or, or maybe their mom died at a young age, so they just don't know who mom is. And, and then you get the others uh, who, who had a child but lost that child with a miscarriage. And then you get the moms or the, the women who want to be moms, so desperately want to be moms but can't seem to conceive. And then just on top of it, you've got the moms who have all the wayward children. And they're heartbroken after, you know, seeing what their kids are doing and and knowing there isn't anything they can do to look after those kids. And, and so this is a difficult day for many. In fact, I don't know if you saw in the news, but there was a, a school in Toronto and they had uh, on their, their sign out front uh, something to the effect of life doesn't come with a manual. It came with a mom." is a kind of cool saying. And I've, I've seen it in other places and it's kind of a, a, a neat statement to moms and what they do for us. Uh, but someone complained and they said, well, it's not inclusive because not everyone has a mom. And so they kind of made the school take it down. Uh, in Quebec this week, uh, they changed Mother's Day to Parents Day because again, some people have two dads or some people are single dads, single parents. So they just dropped moms altogether and it became uh, Parents Day. And and I understand the reactions are there because they're they're trying to look after and not wanting to to stir up trouble in, in people's hearts with the the disappointments they have, but it doesn't actually help anyone. It just leaves everyone kind of miserable. Remember the remember the story about King Solomon and the, and the two moms that, that came to him and one mom she she rolled over her, her baby and the baby died, and so she stole the other mom's child, and they're arguing, and they bring the two, the two moms bring the child to King Solomon, and, and what was Solomon's answer? Cut the cut the baby in half. You just get half. Everyone goes home happy. And uh, and the one mom, the real mom, was say, no, give the child to the other one, but the other one is okay with it. And basically is this idea that if everyone's miserable, that's okay. And the reality is the other mom being miserable doesn't bring your own baby back. So so it doesn't actually help anyone to just ignore the pain. It's still around. And so, so we, we want to celebrate and we want to acknowledge all the moms out there that are looking forward to today and, and hope you know, you know you're, you're having a great day. But we also want to acknowledge the women who are struggling. And so uh, let's pray uh, for all of that right now. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we bring first to you the women who are struggling today, who are struggling with disappointments. Maybe it's the disappointment of uh, not being able to have a child. Maybe it's the loss of a child. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's the frustration of, uh, of the relationship they have with their mom. Whatever it is, Father, we, we think about those people and we pray that you would comfort them. But that they wouldn't run away from their pain. That instead, Lord Jesus, that you would bring healing to that pain. So they can rejoice for who you are and the mom they had. But Father, we also thank you for the moms that we do have. All the sacrifices and all they do. And often for very little praise and very little recognition. But they love so well. And that's an expression of your heart. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for, uh, for the mom you gave us, the mom you chose. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna be in First Samuel, but to understand the context of First Samuel, where Israel was, I I thought it'd be good to to start in Judges. Right, So Israel's left Egypt at this point, was crossing the wilderness for 40 years with Moses as the leader. And then Moses handed the reins over to Joshua. And Joshua then was the leader that went into Canaan and kind of led the, the military campaign to take over Canaan, the promised land that God gave Israel. Uh, and then, it, then Joshua dies and he passes. And there's no, no recognized leader. There's no king of Israel at this point. There's no office that there is. Uh, instead, what God uses is He uses what's called judges. And, and judges are the ones that He's going to raise up. And so, if we, if we read in, sorry, in Judges chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 8, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his, inher- of his inheritance in that city, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Geish. It's in the Bible. Uh, Read it yourself. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers and arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work that the Lord God had done for Israel. Did you see that? That another generation arose. And now it may not have been immediately, but it might have been the next generation. But within one generation, a generation arose and they didn't know who God was. They didn't know the miracles. They didn't know really about Egypt and the Red Sea and and, and the provision in the wilderness. They didn't know about uh, Jericho and and all the battles that they won in in Canaan. They just didn't know. And they've forgotten God. And so the result of that then is, is in verses 16 to 19, what begins to happen. And so the Lord began to raise up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. You see, because they'd forgotten who God was, eventually they would find themselves in trouble with other nations and other nations would subdue them. And now they're in trouble. And so God would raise up this judge and this judge was someone who's going to lead them. And judges, for example, famous judges would be like judges like Deborah, Gideon, Samson was a judge. Verse 17. And yet they did not listen to their judges for they played the harlot And other gods bowed down themselves to them, and they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in the Lord, obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, who delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, compassion there, by their groaning because of those who who were oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. and And they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So there's this cycle going on over and over again where they would just continue to turn their back on God. And God would God would raise up a judge and rescue them, and then they would walk away again. And this cycle would just continue over and over and over again. And to kind of set the stage of, of what Israel's like uh, by the time First Samuel comes around, I want to read to you the last verse of Judges. Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It's the last thing. It's actually repeated earlier as well, but it's just like it's a sobering message to this book. The last verse says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king. They didn't need a king because God was going to be their king. That was fine. But everyone was doing what was in, right in their own eyes. They saw themselves as their own king. Can you imagine a scenario like that where everyone has their own truth? Yes. Can you imagine a scenario where everyone says, my rights? Yep. Can you imagine a scenario where everyone's looking out for number one? We sure can. And, and so, two things. One is nothing's new under the sun, right? That this is just a continuation of a pattern where we just try to do it ourselves in our own ways. But the good news is God is still God. And so, when you see how crazy this world is, take, heat, take comfort to know that our God is good and our God's looking after us. All right, let's turn to 1 Samuel now. So that's sort of the context here. There's no king yet. Uh, They have judges, but they would ignore these judges. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the opening chapters here for Samuel, and it's going to tell us about the birth of Samuel. But he's not really the central figure because, again, little children don't have a lot to do with their own birth, right? Again, hard truths. I'm I'm here to tell you the hard truths no one else will. So he's going to, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to discover the the backstory of his birth, because his birth is significant. And kind of like the the opening of a movie, we need to be introduced to the characters. And so the first eight verses are going to introduce us to these various characters. And the first character that we're going to meet is in verse one, a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah is going to be the, the the father of Samuel later on, uh, but he was he was a man from from Ramah, and his name means God's possession, and and I think uh, that's significant because because you would look at his life, it would seem that he lived up to his name, that he honored God and he loved God and he would worship God regularly and offer the sacrifices and and everything with that and it and he would do that regularly and so I think he was I think he was a good man, a godly man that lived up to that name of God's possession. But then we're going to learn that Elkanah has two wives. His first wife is Hannah, and the second wife is Paniah. And, and let's be clear here, it's not that God's endorsing uh, polygamy. Uh, you know the Bible what's great about it is just telling us the truth, the unvarnished truth, of what was happening without, always, without you know, passing judgment sometimes. So for example, it talks about how Abraham owned slaves. It doesn't mean that God's endorsing slavery. It was just at that time, this is what would happen. And at the time here in First Samuel, it was common for men to have more than one wife for different reasons. Uh, there had been more women than men because men had this bad habit of dying in war all the time. And so women would marry, more, uh, there'd be more wives to men. Uh, it also, more wives meant more children. And that was a big deal if you were a farmer or a rancher and you needed those kids because they were free labor. And then some women, as we're going to see, it was the case of Hannah, couldn't conceive a child. And so they would take another wife in order to have, another, have that, those children. And so in the case of Elkanah, he's married to this woman named Hannah and her name means grace. It's a great name, by the way. I'm a little partial to it. Uh, but it means grace, but she was unable to conceive a child. But Elkanah loved her, loved her deeply. In fact, he didn't care whether or not she conceived the child. And so when she's upset and angry about it, he's just like, is not my love enough for you? Because he just wanted her, he just loved her. But he also wanted and needed an heir and one needed children. And so he marries this other woman, Panaya, whose name means jewel. And I think there's a contrast there. And Panaya is able to conceive easily. And so she has many sons and many daughters. That's interesting that there's a number of women in scriptures that struggle with infertility and struggle it for a long time. We've got Hannah here in 1 Samuel. Uh, we have Sarah, and then we have Rebecca, and then we have Rachel. These three generations in a row all struggled to conceive children in Genesis. We've got Samson's mother. There's a Shulamite woman in, uh, in the time of Elijah. And then even in the New Testament, we have uh, Elizabeth, who was barren for a long time until eventually John the Baptist shows up. What's interesting is in each of these cases, it took a long time to conceive. But when that child came, that child was significant. But that's not to say that every, every story of infertility ends with a child. Well, how do you suppose, though, Elkanah's two wives got, to get, got along together? Do you think they were best friends, sister wives, having a great time, supporting each other? Not at all. Not at all. See, in verse 5, it says that, that Elkanah loved Hannah. That he really loved her with a genuine, unconditional love. And what's interesting is, I think, Peniah, though she had the children, what she wanted most is she wanted Elkanah's love. She wanted that attention. She wanted to be the favorite wife. But no matter what she did and how many kids she had, it was always going to be Hannah. While Hannah had that love from Elkanah, what did she want? She wanted the children. Kind of a grass is always greener on the other side predicament here. But, but Panaya looking at all this is filled with, ra- with jealousy, filled with bitterness towards Hannah. And so what he does, is, or what she does is she attacks her. Verse six, it, uh, Panaya is called Hannah's rival. And they saw it as a, as a competition for Elkanah's love for his affection. And so what Penai would do is, is she, would, she would ridicule and attack Hannah. It says in verse 6 that, it, that she would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Point out all the failures and on all the, um, the barrenness that Hannah had just to hurt her, just to make her feel miserable. And and it got so bad that Hannah would just weep and weep and weep to the point where she couldn't eat anymore. And this happened for years. Let let that sink in because it's too, too easy for us to just read a couple verses and just we skip over time. But this happened for years, this disappointment. So you think about it, Hannah gets married. She's the first wife of Elkanah and and she's looking forward to having A, a marriage and then having children, having a family. And at this point in time in history, women really only had one option, right? There was no promotion of STEM, you know, and you could be a lawyer and you could be prime minister and all these things, CEO. No, as a woman in this time, you have really one function, have a family, have children. And that was her dream. And she was looking forward to that. And now she's married and, and she's looking forward to having a child. But then month after month after month, nothing. And then maybe after a year or two, nothing. And then suddenly Elkanah takes on another wife. And immediately she gets pregnant. What does that tell Hannah about herself? It's her fault. It wasn't Alkana's wasn't problem. It was, it was my problem. And so the disappointment that she would have felt would have been massive, would have been devastating. Because Proverbs 13, 12 says, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. So put yourself in, in Hannah's shoes now. Because again, it wasn't just a short period of time. First, the initial disappointment, and then seeing Paniah get pregnant. And then that first child comes, and, and what's everyone's reaction? Celebration. And what's Elkanah's reaction? Celebration. As it should be. We're celebrating the birth of a child. And that's wonderful and it's exciting. But how's Hannah feeling? Devastated. And then Penai gets pregnant again. And another child comes. And again. And another child comes. and And again. And again. To the point where now Paniah has many sons and many daughters. That's a period of, of what, 10, 15 years maybe. That Hannah's been seeing this over and over and over again. Reminded again and again of her failure. Of her failure to, to be a proper woman. And with every child, with every pregnancy, what's Paniah saying to Hannah. Boasting, proud. I mean, how difficult would it have been for Hannah to be around Panaya, especially when she's constantly showing off that she's pregnant, that she's nursing, that she has children. What's Hannah feeling about herself? I'm just a giant failure. She's going to say later on, I think this is really the, the title, the name she had for herself. I'm a worthless woman. Because again, sadly, women were seen as having one job: have children, have a family, and she couldn't do that one thing. So she was a worthless woman in her own mind, in her own eyes, compared to especially Panaya, the, the jewel, the celebrated one, that comparison. just not good enough. Well <clears throat> We said earlier that Elkanah would would gather up the family, gather up Hannah and Penai and all the, the children. And every year he would go to Shiloh to go and worship God. So Shiloh's north of the city, Ramah. Um, and they'd go to Shiloh because that's where the tabernacle had settled after Israel came into the promised land. So the, the center of worship is in Shiloh. It's going to, later going to move to Jerusalem when Solomon builds a temple. But right now, that's everything happens in Shiloh. And that's where the high priest is. And that high priest is a man named Eli that we're going to meet here in this passage as well. But it was during one of these trips that the story begins to change. The story begins to change for Hannah. And the change started with her praying. Don't miss that. Don't miss the significance of that moment that it started with a prayer, a simple prayer. Now, it's probably not our first prayer. and I think it's, it's valuable and important to understand that because when, when people think, hear that, oh, let's start with a prayer, what's the initial reaction when that prayer hasn't been answered the way they want it to be? I tried that and it didn't work. Well, I bet you Hannah tried it and it hadn't worked yet. It hadn't worked yet. There's great power in earnest prayer. And we're told that. You don't have to turn to it, but in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, James writes here, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah was just a human being. He was just a simple man. There was nothing special about the prophet Elijah. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for 3 years and 6 months and then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit see the power we have and too often we discount that power and we give up on it and so we 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 pray cuz we're supposed to but it's almost like we're checking a box we're going through the motions we're not really sincerely praying trusting that God's going to answer that prayer. And so earlier on in James chapter one, in verse six to eight, James says this, but he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Again, it's too often we throw that prayer up and then we move on and we never actually give God a chance to answer it. Because our heart's not in it. And God knows that. God knows it's just going through the motions. And so what we see here is this Hannah. I I think it wasn't like she was doing that up to this moment. She was earnestly praying. I believe that. It just wasn't going to be one prayer that did it. It was going to take multiple prayers. In fact, when Elijah prayed for the rain to come back, it wasn't one prayer. It took multiple prayers. And then they start off with a little small cloud and it began to grow. And so that's what we can do in our prayers. And in this case here, in this moment in 1 Samuel in in Shiloh, we see a beautiful prayer from Hannah, but it wasn't pretty. Like it was, it was sobbing. It was weeping. It was, it was an ugly kind of, of prayer, an ugly cry kind of prayer. There was nothing elegant about it. In verse 10, she greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. It was coming from her heart, all the disappointment. In fact, it was the kind of prayer where she couldn't even speak out loud, but her lips were moving. And she's crying and she's a mess. And there's there's Eli, the high priest, sitting in his chair, in his place of honor, and he's watching all this and he has, comes to the conclusion, she's drunk. She's drunk and she's come to worship God drunk. I mean, that's, that's so disrespectful. And so he calls out to her woman, go home, sleep it off. Like, how dare you come and present yourself to God drunk? That's not a. Right. That's not right. Hannah's broken inside just says, have, have pity on me. A worthless woman. This failure, this shameful woman, this this inadequate, inferior woman, have mercy on me, have pity on me i 'm just crying out to my God, just praying that God would give her a child we 've got to be careful here now because we could we could read this passage and and, and we could come to two erroneous conclusions the the first one would be that that if you just prayed like Hannah that that disappointment would come true now maybe maybe your maybe your disappointment is just like Hannah maybe maybe you are you've wanted a child and just all you want is to hold your own baby in your own arms and that's that's not true of only women there's some men too that have that's their dream that's their desire and no matter how much you've prayed how much you've tried it just hasn't worked but maybe it's another dream. Maybe it's a dream that you'd have that wayward child come home or, or you would, you'd get that new job or, or you would find someone to marry and have a family that way. We all have dreams. We all have desires. And we'd be wrong to conclude that if you just prayed the right way, then God will answer that prayer. Cause that's just manipulating God. The other erroneous thing would be, well, you just haven't prayed enough. You just haven't prayed well. You haven't prayed the right way. And if, and if you were just a little bit more sincere, then God wouldn't be so disappointed in you. And that's why he wouldn't be punishing you. Because a lot of people believe that. But, but turn in your Bibles. Keep your finger in, in Samuel because we're going to come back to it. But turn in your Bibles to 1 John 5. I want you to see the heart of your father. 1 John 5, verse 14. John writes this, and this is the confidence, this is the confidence which we have before him, our father. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests of which we've asked from him. Your father hears you, he says. Whatever you ask, he hears you. And what's interesting is in this, this passage here in 1 Samuel, we see over and over again the word for ask. That that she asked this ask. In fact, Samuel means asked of God. And so overall, this ask, 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 but it's not a demand. And there's a difference there. It's a big difference. Because you see here, it's it's asking whatever is of God's will. That's the important part of all this. And whatever we ask according to his will, then he will answer that in the way we want. And please understand, God answers every prayer, just not the way we always want it to be. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's yes, but not yet. And sometimes it's no. And we see that throughout scripture over and over again. And the most difficult one is when it's no. When you see a child who's suffering and there's no healing. When you see a wayward child not coming back to him. When you see a womb that won't be opened. When you see a sick body not healed. When you see the pain in this world and seemingly nothing is happening. And it's hard to accept, but the reality is, and this is the most uncomfortable answer, but there's no other answer that is true. The reality is he's God and you're not. He's Lord and he knows what you and I need better than you do. But the other side of it is he also wants more for you than you want for yourself may not be the same thing. Or you may believe that that this is the way. This is what I need. And the answer is no. God says, I know what you need. I know it's in your best interest. And the question is, will you trust me with this? And I believe that was Hannah's heart. See, Hannah, again, she wasn't demanding of God. You see, it would have been easy for her to become embittered towards God at this point. To be angry with God. And to withhold, hold her allegiance to him, saying, If you really love me, God, you would give me what I wanted. If you really cared about me, then you would answer this prayer with a yes. And until you do, it had been easy for her to have that attitude. But that wasn't her attitude. You see, her heart attitude was one of surrender. We sang it this morning. She surrendered over to God. And, and I, I, I know that because what we see in her heart is a pure desire. Read, read verse 11 with me and, and look at her heart. She's in it's, she made a vow, a promise and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not for thy maidservant, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now, you could assume that she's bargaining with God. Anyone do that? God, if you, if you do this one thing, I'll become a missionary. Right? I'll, I'll go here, I'll do this, I'll give this up, and we we bargain with God. But I don't, I don't believe that's what she was doing here. See, what she was doing is she was offering, dedicating this child as a Nazarite to A Nazirite means one that is set aside, one that's separated. And and the most famous one is Samson, the long, glorious hair. Um, But there are other ones. John the Baptist would have been one. This this person that's set aside for unique service. And in this case here, she's kind of remembering Samson's story. How Samson's mother had a closed womb. And but yet this special child would come for service to God. And so she's saying, God, would you just use me for your purpose? See, that was her heart. Her heart wasn't give me a child for me. Her heart was God, use me for you. Let me be a part of your plan and what you're doing. And so if you give me a child, this child will belong to you. She was giving it up even before she had it. But again, I I know it was a surrendered prayer because her attitude afterwards. See, it goes on in verse 19 after she prayed and after Eli confronts her about being drunk and and she she pleads for just mercy and understanding, compassion for all that she's gone through. After she prays in verse 19, it says, she arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to her house in Ramah. So she prays. Did she get pregnant right away? Is it an immaculate conception? No. She's got no answer. Nothing's different. Nothing's changed. And yet everything's different because she gets up and she worships. She didn't need to have a yes to worship God. She made a request known. She let her heart's desire be made known, but she was okay with whatever the result was. She was going to worship God even if the answer was no. And that's how you know that it was a surrendered heart. In, in counseling people, they're, they're coming to count for counseling because they're in a crisis. Something in their life isn't what they want it to be. Maybe a, a marriage is falling apart, maybe they're struggling with a child, or, or they're struggling with anxiety and, and, and things aren't happening well in the world around them, or they're lonely. Or they got a dream that just God won't seem to answer. And and no matter what it is that we're dealing with and helping them, they will come to a point where surrender is required. Where surrender is needed. And, And when they surrender, I know it, I know they surrendered. Well, when they come back and they say something like, nothing's changed, but everything's different. Nothing's changed. My circumstances haven't changed one iota. The marriage is still, the, the my spouse is neglecting me, mistreating me. Or my spouse still wants a divorce. Still not pregnant. My child still won't talk to me. I still am a single and I, I'm not dating anyone. I, I, I seem to be alone. I'm, I'm still not seeing things change around me. But everything's different inside. I'm different now. I have peace with whatever the outcome is. Because that act of surrender is saying, God, here's my plea. Here's my cry. Here's my struggle. But do whatever you want with it. Change it. Don't change it. Or even let it crumble and make become worse. I choose to trust you regardless. So that was the prayer of the three Hebrews. Remember in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Bow down and worship the king. No, we're not going to do it. Well, if you don't, we're going to throw you in the fire. Okay? Okay, because we know our God will rescue us. Isn't that amazing faith? Put us in the oven. Do whatever you want. Our God will rescue us. Incredible faith, but it gets better. Because they say, and even if he doesn't, even if we perish in that fire, we will not worship another because he's still God. They didn't need God to do what they wanted for them to worship God. And yet too often that's the case. And so people will come back after they surrender and I say, how did it go? And they say, it didn't work. Didn't work. Yeah, I gave it over to God and he didn't, nothing, nothing happened. Nothing changed. In fact, it got worse. Well, then you didn't Surrender. Really, all you did is you had a problem and you said, God, here's, here's what you need to do. Now go off and do it. And when you've done it, then bring it back to me. Who's in charge now? We make God our servant. We make God sort of like a genie in a bottle, right? Where we rub the lamp and we got three wishes and now God do it. And God now is a means to an end. God now is, is simply someone we go to to get what I want. But it's not about him anymore. But for Hannah, it was about God. She worshiped God because he was God and she was willing to trust him with whatever the outcome was. If she was barren her whole life or if she had a child, she worshiped God the next day and she goes home. And it says there that she had relations with her husband, Khan. Josh, that, that means they got pregnant, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. That makes, now the Bible makes sense. Now it suddenly makes sense. The hard truth, that you won't hear anywhere else. Right here, right here. And, it, and, and um, they don't say how long exactly, but it's roughly based on that time. For the next three years, uh, Hannah would now nurse and care for Samuel. I think about that. I still remember when, when um, we had little babies and, and the spell that those babies had on joy. I would disappear. I, was, I didn't matter anymore. I, I was well down the list. I was looking after all the other kids and she had the little baby and and she would just just love to nurse and that time of bonding was so special. I was jealous. But for 3 years she did this. The connection, the bonding, the love, the care. And then it was time to fulfill her vow. And she had no problem doing it cuz she was surrendered. It doesn't say that she, she tried to renegotiate the deal. She didn't say like, well, God, maybe, maybe you can have the next child. And Elkanah didn't have a problem either. Again, lived up to his name of God's possession. He loved God. He worshiped God. And he understood. And together they, they went and they presented little three-year-old Samuel, little, little toddler Samuel to Eli and says, this child belongs to God. And he was raised in Shiloh in the temple. Or the tabernacle. And, and Hannah would come and bring him gifts, but on an annual basis. She was able to surrender and give him up. And what we see is, is her, her song of thanksgiving for this child. It's so beautiful. I, I, want to, I want you to read it with me in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 2, or sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Upon knowing that she's, she's pregnant, has a child, Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now I would say it is easier to pray that prayer when the answer is yes. But I believe she would have still prayed that prayer if the answer is no. Because God, you still God. Her trust was still in God. But in this next section, I want you to notice, I want you to notice the contrast here of what God is going to do through her prayer and what, he, what the message he's trying to say. It goes on, it says, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let the arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. So you see a contrast of the strength and the weak. Because in many ways, Paniah, the jewel, was the strong, powerful one, the arrogant one that seemingly had it all. And Hannah was the worthless woman, the failure. And God had compassion on her. And the arrogant one and the, and the humbled one flip. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor rich. He brings low also. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silence and darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. But God's strength and his power has compassion for those that are lowly, those who have been going through oppression, those who are going through difficult times. But then, verse 10, I was amazed when I read verse 10. Because what she's going to do is she's going to offer now a messianic prophecy. She says in verse 10, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them, he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exhort the horn of his anointed. Remember, Israel has no king at this point. It's going to be many decades before Israel gets a king. There's no notion, no idea that that there's going to be a king in Israel. And yet, she is prophesying of the coming king, the seed of David, the one who is on the throne of David today, King Jesus. That blew my mind that this, this humble, this, this worthless woman would be used by God in such a powerful way. And here's, here's the big takeaway from this morning. If you've minds drifted off and you're somewhere else, then just, just come back for this. That's it. It's worth it. It really is. God doesn't need you and I to be powerful. He doesn't need you and I to be be connected and and to have special special authorities and special roles and have this this vast power of em, an empire of control at, at our fingertips. All he needs. And all he wants are people with a surrendered heart. Second Chronicles sixteen verse nine. You can look it up when you get home, but it's worth reading. It says, "The eyes of the Lord look to and fro the earth. He's constantly looking throughout this earth, looking not at the outside because that's how man judges it. Instead, he's looking at the heart of each person, and what he's looking for." is for a single person whose heart belongs to him. That's it. And anyone you finds whose heart belongs to him, he's going to use. He's going to use in powerful ways. And that's what he does. I mean, think about Mary, a little teenage girl. And he chose her to be the mother of our Lord Jesus. Why? Because she had the right genes, right genetics, No, her heart belonged to God. And so God could use her. Think about Isaiah. God send me. Let me go be your mouthpiece. Send me. Think about Esther. You were born for such a time as this. Now will you, will you take up the chance? Will you do it? And here's Hannah this seemingly worthless woman, this seemingly failure, but whose heart was given over to God. And she said, God, use me any way you see fit. And in this case, she gave birth to Samuel, who would go on to be the final prophet or final judge, sorry, of Israel and would anoint the first two king of Israel, first King Saul and then King David, who was the great, great something grandfather of Jesus himself. And then offers this messianic prayer, this messianic prophecy. See, all of us have dreams. We all have desires. We all want to see, see things happen in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones and in the lives of our friends and our community and our nation and even in the world. We all have these dreams. But are you okay with trusting those dreams to God? and trusting that that he may not do the things you want him to do. He may not answer the prayers you want him to answer them the way you want him to answer them. He may say no or not yet, but he just doesn't seem to come through. But will you trust him regardless? Will you worship him because he's God? Because he loves you, knowing that he desires more for you than you want for yourself. And that he will use whatever you're going through, even the difficulties, even the disappointments. And all he needs from you and I is our trust. All he needs from you and I is that surrendered heart. May we have that attitude that Jesus had on the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. Because we don't want to be like Israel, where there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're God and I'm not. Because when I look back at my own life, the things that I demanded from you, if you gave them to me, I would regret it. And you know exactly what I need. And you desire more for me than I desire for myself. I was the way it was with the children of Israel but they were unwilling to trust you. They were unwilling to come under your protection and they try to manufacture and take care of themselves, be their own God. May we not be that that person. May we, Lord Jesus, instead be the one that trusts you and trusts in your strength and your power. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you that you're God. In your name we pray, amen.